This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Science Notes, a programme on Otago Access Radio brought to you by the Science News and Promotion Group at the University of Otago. Join me, Dave McMorrin, as I chat with graduate science students. We'll find out about their research, why they do science at all, and what music they enjoy. Science Notes, Thursdays from 6.30 till 7pm, only on Otago Access Radio. Well, good evening, and welcome to Science Notes again for another week. My name's Dave McMorrin, and this week uh, our guest is Katie Fenton. Hi, Katie. Kia ora, Dave. Um, thank you for coming along on a surprisingly cool Dunedin evening. Mm, thank you for having Although me. we get pretty much everything these days weather-wise, it seems. Yeah. Um, Katie is doing a Master's in Marine Science mm-hmm. at Otago University, and in fact has become increasingly famous for her work. Um, I first became aware of what she was doing when she was competing in the heats of something called the three-minute thesis competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and she won that for the master's section and has subsequently, I believe, won the national one Yes, I have. Yep, the virtual competition. So does this mean you now go overseas? Um, no, actually, inst- interestingly, um, New Zealand is the only competition that hosts master's students. So right. um, the PhD students go overseas, but I just remain in New Zealand. So I Excellent. have to hang well, around. Well done anyway. Thank you. Thank so you we'll much. talk a bit tonight about the work that, um, that Katie's been doing and that has led in part to this this honour, but we will start, as we do, with a bit of music that she's brought along, and so the first one is? Um, the first song I'm going to play is Booster Seat by a Spacey Jane. I'm a okay. very big Spacey Jane fan. Here we go.
You're listening to Science Notes on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM, where this week we're talking with Katie Fenton about her Master's in Marine Science. Mm-hmm. So how is it? I mean, I suppose Marine Science, you, you talk to lots of people and they say, oh, I want to be a marine biologist when I grow up. I want to study dolphins and stuff. You're not quite doing dolphins, but, it, but was it the same sort of thing for you from an early age? Um... It was, and then it changed a lot, I think. I was very keen on being originally an ornithologist Mm. was my dream. Um, I think just because I liked telling people the word ornithologist and then having to explain (laughs) it. That was the dream from about maybe age three to ten. And then I got quite into marine biology, but... I had a netball coach and an auntie who were kind of like, oh, you'll probably end up being an accountant or something. Maybe marine biology isn't the path, not many jobs and stuff. Yeah, well, there is that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then um, I went to uni and just my total interest was in ecology and marine science. So I just thought, oh, well, I'll give it a go. So you did a, a bachelor's then in Yeah, I did a bachelor's in um, ecology, in ecology actually. So right. at the time, marine science wasn't an option. So oh, okay, I did, right. yeah, yep. majored in ecology and minored in marine science. Um, but I brought that minor on later. Originally, I was going to do history, te reo Māori, and ecology kind of as an interest on the side. And it very quickly became the main focus yep. of my degree just because I loved it. So, And yeah. so now you're back and you are studying perhaps not what people would immediately think of as no. the desirable creature from marine scientist. You're studying cockles. Yes, I'm studying cockles. Um, and I take out many of my friends and family who sort of have to make me point out what's a cockle and what's a rock. Mm. Um, but, <laughs> um, yeah, I first came across um, cockles in my first year paper of ecology. We do this kind of dire all-day field project where we go out onto an estuary. Um, and I grew up around um, the rocky shore a lot and played on the rocky shore, but I didn't have that much experience with estuaries. Um, and apart from that very long day, I actually developed a real interest in um, what cockles are and what they do for an ecosystem, but also their importance to people, especially down here, who mm. collect them and eat them. And yep. I think with many people um, who I bring up, the fact I study cockles with, they're like, oh my gosh, how many do you eat in a day? You know, that kind of thing. And I like I like that it has that kind of um, cultural value to like Māori and Pākehā, mm. um, as well as the value of it being a species in the ecosystem. Yeah. So so for those who may not be familiar or indeed may not be from, from New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, tell us what your cockle looks like. Tell us about your cockles. So um, a cockle is basically really similar to a clam. It technically is a clam species. So they're a bivalve shellfish, which means they've got um, two shells that basically lock together um, and then they can open up those shells a little bit to feed. So they filter feed on particulates in the water. Um, so basically a little phytoplankton and zooplankton and stuff that um, come down um, in from the coast and down from rivers into estuaries. Um, you probably will have seen, if you live in New Zealand, you will have seen their shells around the beach. Yeah. Um, they've got these very beautiful ridged um, shells that down here are quite multicoloured, but where I'm from in Wellington, they're sort of more yellowed and right. a little bit more plain. They tend to always be just the half. Is that because they, they kind of open up when they die and you only ever see half of the shell? Yeah, or, so usually they one, just one open up. one of the two up. shells at Yeah, least. exactly. They'll yeah. just open up and um, break off into right. Um, two separate pieces usually but sometimes if you're lucky you can see them stuck together right. um, and yeah they will look quite different depending on whether they're in an estuary which obviously is quite a high nutrient area so they get quite chubby um, or out on your open coast they can be very different shapes right. um, which is quite interesting. 
And there's lots of them, at least in principle. Down, I mean, I was reading your notes down here. There's, in theory, lots of them. Yes, yeah. There are billions and billions of them down in Dunedin. Um, so in Dunedin, we're pretty lucky. Um, we haven't got a very um, deeply affected cockle population by, like, human stresses yet, so by kind of overdevelopment problems um, and over-harvest options um, problems. But I'm a little bit reluctant to talk about harvesting as a problem for cockle populations because I think there's so much value in families mm. being able to go out and collect cockles. Mm. They're not something that's commercially farmed or anything at all? They are commercially farmed, mm. um, yep, by southern clams down here. So they take out quite a high biomass of cockles um, from the estuaries. Um, they, yeah, they say that it's a sustainable amount that they take out, and I'll trust that. Yeah. Um, up in um, Auckland area, there is the cockles are much smaller, and they're found in much smaller biomass. So right. there are some quite strong concerns up there about the decline of cockles. So what I'm kind of looking at is our Dunedin population. There is a feeling among locals that these cockles are in decline in some areas of Dunedin. So I'm kind of looking at um, our Dunedin estuaries as an example of like. Um, what might happen to these cockle populations and our preliminary concerns and what we should be thinking about if we were to get into a situation where we would need to restore cockle beds, if right. that makes sense. Um, yeah, so if, I mean, I suppose if, if you didn't know anybody, you would say, well, if there's not many there or the numbers are declining, what you want to do is you want to go away and grow somewhere, somewhere in a controlled way and then pop them back in. Yeah, well... Um, and so that's... But as it turns out, again, from reading your notes, it's not quite that straightforward. And this is kind of the guts of what your master's about is about, isn't it? Yeah. Is yeah. whether that's actually a feasible thing or not. Yeah, and what I think, um, what I'm really interested in thinking about is what is the best practice um, moving forward that is affordable and that is possible for kind of communities, whether that be like a hapu or even just a school community, to try and do some of their own kind of grassroots, grassroots restoration. Um and yeah, so I've found um, what I reckon is happening is that if we were to go off, just grow a bunch of cockle spat, like juvenile cockles we call them, um, and try and bring them back into a cockle bed, you wouldn't actually get that great um, survival rates because these juvenile cockles get really heavily predated on by crabs. Right. Um, so yeah, I looked um, at the paddle crab species, which are also um, a very valued kind of food um, for locals around here. And also something you often find bits of lying on the beaches around here as well. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. You always see the way, often the way crab carapaces or the backs of crabs will be from paddle crabs. Yeah. yeah. Um, those guys love to feed on cockles, like they voraciously feed on cockles, um, but at different times of the year. So I decided to look at kind of a in the lab experiment, seeing whether crabs predated more on cockles um, when there were large adults around them or not. So paddle crabs like to eat the teeny weeny ones. Um, and it shows that the adults, when the adults are present in these treatments, they seem to protect our baby cockles from getting eaten by the paddle crabs. So the crux of my project is thinking, okay, if we were to inform a community that wants to restore their um, cockle bed of what they need to do, um, they would need to think about the size distribution of the population they have and how they can support um, growing new spat into that bed, mm. if that makes sense. You're doing a, a Master's in Marine Science, mm -hmm. so there has to be experiments involved, and I'm somewhat hesitant to ask, because I think I know the answer, <laughs> but what is the experiment that you have done to test your hypothesis? Yes, very sadly, <laughs> many baby cockles have been sacrificed for this experiment. Yeah. Um, so I did a bunch of field trials over the summer last year um, that kind of looked in a less controlled way, but a more natural way of how um, adult presence may protect um, juvenile cockles from predation, but obviously 
obviously I couldn't track predation. And at the time, I thought that um, birds would be the main factor controlling mm. these cockle populations. Um, and then I actually read something, because I went out every day bird watching, and like it's very scale dependent. You know, there were quite little plots I'd set up, and the yeah. birds didn't go there much. And so these um, are the wee, the wee black oyster catchers? Or yes, the, yeah, yeah, the wee black oyster yeah. catchers. And the they occasionally like godwit and stuff, depending on yeah. time of year. But yeah, yeah, oyster catchers would be the main one. Very loud loud little birds um, but yeah then I read something that um, way back in the day um, Ngaitahu fishermen would actually target um, crab populations sometimes in order to protect their shellfish populations and I mm. thought oh that's a very cool little bit of mātauranga um, and then I talked to my supervisor and he also definitely thought that um, crabs may be more of a predator than we originally expected um, of cockles and I mean, it's pretty evident from the lab stuff that I've done that at certain times of the year when the water is warm, um, definitely crabs are a huge predator of our juvenile cockles, um, especially when they are in the absence of large adults to protect them. So, so what, what role do the, the adults play? Is it just just the presence of having big ones that sort of puts the crabs off, or do they kind of cover them up somehow? Or? Yeah, it's just kind of that incidental presence of them. I always say it, it creates kind of a pavement of protection for these juveniles. So these adults aren't there thinking, I'm going to protect my babies. Yeah. It, just, it just so happens that by being there, it seems that um, juveniles are protected by them. And research that... Um, I'm kind of unpacking at the moment as thinking, do these juveniles purposefully migrate to these areas of high adult mm. density? Um, or is it just that when the juveniles are in the absence of adults, they get uh, killed? They're no longer why. there for you to see them. Yeah, yeah. So lots of interesting things. So how then, this isn't going to be the right language, No. How, how, do they, how do the cockles get born? Oh no! Great question. So, um, if they are obviously, it's not a mechanism by which they're still around where the adults, what made them, are. Yeah, yeah. So, um, cockles are broadcast spawners. So basically, um, they will just open up and push all their sperm and eggs into the water column, um, with the hope that these sperm and eggs will combine. So that's why you see cockles in such high biomass. With you see so many cockles in one place together, they need to be close together in order to effectively reproduce. Right. Um, so then these sperm and egg will combine and create a little baby cockle larvae that will kind of get entrained in the estuary. So they'll just float around in the estuary until right. they settle and grow into little juvenile cockles. And they settle when they just get big enough to sink to the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it's usually the presence of adults will help them settle because it provides a little bit of substrate, a little bit of complexity for them right. to get down. Okay. Um, and yeah, then they're happy to grow up and hopefully... And so then the trick is, is that ideally they want to settle somewhere where there's some... Big ones. Adults present, yeah. And, and if um, they don't, then yeah. it's possibly bad news. Bad news for them. And they can move quite a lot. I've been surprised by how much mm. the wee cockles that I've sort of marked and set out in the estuary can um, move around. You've marked them. Yes, you I have marked them. No, <laughs> <laughs> this was a gr big discussion of last year as to how I could effectively mark a cockle. And I decided that the most effective way would be using nail polish. And yep. it was great, actually. It worked perfectly. It stayed on the cockle for two weeks. It didn't seem to affect any of their behaviour. Um, and now there's just several cockles with wee little nail polish dots on them hanging out in the history. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. So... You, so you've done experiments out in the... So I should have asked, where, whereabouts are we, are, we, are we doing these experiments? So this was at Waitari Inlet. Um, so that's part of um, Blueskin Bay, and that's within, like, Kati Huirapa's okay. domain. So, so just north of Dunedin? Yeah, just 
just north yep. of Dunedin. So the cockles there are in really, really high densities. So that was a pretty cool um, place for me to run this experiment. And also there's like quite a lot of cus- customer, oh, not customary, but um, recreational fishing pressure on the area. So mm-hmm. people were always out there collecting cockles, which has been really fun, like chatting to people about what I was doing and like seeing the kids getting out there and picking their cockles and stuff. I put up a few little signs saying, please don't touch the wee plots that I set up. And it didn't seem like anyone did, so that's good. If the cockle has nail polish on, please leave it alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, hopefully. Um, it, it was just pretty cool um, site. It's got a whole bunch of really interesting um, ecological factors, but also, like, um, the cultural history of the area is pretty amazing. The area is really well managed by Kati Huirapa um, as to, like, bag limits of cockles and just their thoughtfulness about that whole ecosystem right. is really cool. So, yeah, it was a real pleasure to work out there. Um other part of my work is working with Otako Marae um, out at Te One Beach, which is on the way out to the Albatross Centre. Yeah, um, which is the one time I've I've ever many many years ago tried co- collecting cockles. Oh down yeah, there. Yes. how did it go? Um, I remember being wet and cold. <laughs> 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 it was at night. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and you do have to pick your tides right mm, out at Te One. Mm. Um, but they have beautiful big cockles, <clears throat> slightly different colouring to your sorry. <clears throat> to your Waitari ones um, and they were quite concerned about their populations being in decline so I looked at sorry <clears throat> um, I looked at the biomass of those cockles and thought a little bit about the juveniles as well but they have a much lower juvenile proportion um, as well compared to Waitari so that's something to think about for me is how do we um, manage those small customary or mm. recreational beds you know what what can you do when it might not necessarily be in the interest of MPI or a university to go yeah. out to these places and but it's an important part of the wee community yes yeah, so important to the community and yeah. they hold a lot of you know institutional mātauranga about those beds they know everything about that bed mm. um, what tools can we give them or how can we assist them um, these really overstretched tapu and stuff to um, manage these awesome kaimoana that have you're rapidly running out of time. Oh, no. <laughs> um, how far through are you? Um, so I am in the write-up stage okay. currently. So I'm about two months out of handing sure. in. Yeah. Excellent. And then? Um, and then I'm going to take probably about six months off, just not think about cockles or anything marine-based for a while. Um, the current plan is potentially to go um, up to Vic, Uni of Wellington, and, um, or maybe stay down at Otago, depending, um, and start a PhD, right. I think, will be the plan. Um, not in cockles? Not in cockles, sadly. No. Um, I'm thinking I'll look at power restoration. Right. Um, but we'll just see. It's all rather up in the air. But I think my... Um, my real goal is to keep working in the community restoration space. That's where I love it. And working with like Kaimoana species yeah. and species that people feel a real affinity to is what I love. I think yeah. it's, yeah, super, super important work and super um, interesting work. And I love the people aspect of yeah. it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. Well, um, thank you. All the best for, for the writing. Yeah. The writing is the best bit. Mm. Not. <laughs> Um, and, and thank you for coming along and, and telling us what you've been up to. And congratulations again on thank your you, on your, your you. honours and, and glory. <laughs>
Um, and thank you everyone out there for listening I'll just remind you that you can listen to the show again next week at the same time and then at your leisure as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website which is www.oar.org.nz we will finish with the second piece of music which is oh yes this piece is um Landslide by the Chicks. Um, I am a bit of a closeted country music fan, so I thought I may as well honour that um, and go out on a high with Landslide. This was a song that I've listened to many times um, on my trips out to the estuaries, so I hope you guys enjoy. Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. program on Otago Access Radio brought to you by the Science News and Promotion Group at the University of Otago. Join me, Dave McMorran, as I chat with graduate science students. We'll find out about their research, why they do science at all, and what music they enjoy. Science Notes, Thursdays from 6.30 to 7pm, only on Otago Access Radio. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.